Origins, Approaches and Debates in Psychology Episode 8 The Social Learning or Social Cognitive Approach The focus of this episode is the social learning approach or, as it's been known since 1986, the social cognitive approach. Social learning theories such as those of Albert Bandura, 1977, and Walter Michel, 1973, originated in America in the 1940s and 1950s. I'll be looking at Albert Bandura's most famous research, the Bobo Doll Experiment, in this episode. But since you probably haven't heard of Walter Michel, let me tell you first about his most famous achievement. He is the creator of the Marshmallow Test for immediate and deferred gratification. He would leave a child alone in a room with one marshmallow and tell the child he would come back in five minutes and if the marshmallow was still there, he would give the child a second marshmallow too. The treats were always visible to the children, so it must have been a frustrating experience for them. This classic experiment demonstrated that the longer the child delayed gratification, in other words, waited before eating the marshmallow, the better they would fare in later life in numerous measures of what we would now call executive function. The child would perform better academically, earn more money and would be healthier and happier. The child would also be more likely to avoid a number of negative outcomes, including going to jail, obesity and becoming addicted to drugs. Social cognitive theories were an attempt to reinterpret certain aspects of Freud's psychoanalytic theory in terms of learning theory or behaviourism. That is, explaining behaviour in terms of classical and operant conditioning. Bandura and his colleagues tried to make Freud's concept of identification more objective by studying it experimentally in the form of imitation. More specifically, many of these experiments were concerned with aggression, but social learning theory has also been applied to many aspects of human development, such as gender and morality, and has been the basis for some health promotion strategies, including those used in the coronavirus pandemic, most notably in New Zealand. Two key differences between social learning theory and traditional learning theory are, firstly, the focus on human social behaviour, and second, the role of mediating cognitive processes, making this a less deterministic version of learning theory. Whoever thought we could learn so much from a child and a marshmallow? And in case you were wondering, other sweet treats were available for those children who didn't like marshmallows. The basic principles and assumptions of the social learning approach are that observational or social learning occurs when one individual, the learner, acquires a new behaviour by imitating another individual known as the model. In discussing this theory, I'll talk a lot about models. This is models as in other people acting as a role model, not playing with toys, just, just to be clear. Whether seeing a model perform a behaviour affects our desire to copy them is affected by a number of factors. For example, same-sex models are more effective than opposite-sex models. 
Other important attributes that may make someone an effective behaviour model include power, social status and likability. In today's societies, celebrities and media influences are more likely to be seen as high status in society and their behaviour imitated, in many cases replacing traditional role models of parents, older siblings or even teachers. Social psychologists have investigated the effect on performance of having another person present. The mere presence of other individuals may enhance learning by increasing competition or reducing fear, but this is not true social learning and it's not what these theories are investigating. The individual concerned may not even be aware of their status as a role model, and observational learning can provide a shortcut to the acquisition of new and complex behaviours by imitating members of the same species. Interestingly, this phenomenon is by no means limited to humans. Studies of macaques have shown that once one female in a pack found that she could wash the nasty gritty sand off a sweet potato she wanted to eat in the sea, other macaques copied the idea and it spread quickly around the group. So for animals in their natural habitats, this is a relatively safe, error-free way to learn about social behaviours, foraging and responses to predators. This social learning approach also uses concepts from the psychodynamic and learning approaches, but takes into account mediating cognitive factors. We can think about what we've seen, and in doing so, this acknowledges a degree of free will. The leading researcher is Albert Bandura with his Bobo doll studies, but we'll also look at the mediating factors that, according to Bandura, predict whether we are likely to copy an action we've observed or not. One of the areas of most interest to social cognitive theorists is the question of the impact of the media on aggressive behaviour. It attempts to answer the question, does watching violent movies make you more aggressive? Let's start at the very beginning, considering the origins of behaviour. Like the learning approach, the social cognitive approach acknowledges that almost all behaviours are learned from our environment after birth. No child is born a nationalist, a racist, a sexist or a chauvinist. People must become these things through the process of socialisation. This begins with the family, a process called primary socialisation, and then continued through school, society and culture, and critically these days the media, a process called secondary socialisation. The media is an increasing influence on children's lives and in many ways has allowed children to access material that might previously have been blocked by gatekeepers such as parents or teachers who would have screened out unsuitable material. You can search for practically anything on the internet, watch violent films, porn, find some deeply unsuitable material. As I found out once when researching a topic for a school they'd requested, Tudor torture. Not everything that came up was suitable for my purposes and I had to report to the IT department in case they thought I'd been doing something deeply dodgy. What about children's TV shows, made specifically for children in preschool and primary school age groups? These typically model positive norms such as good manners or sharing, reward good behaviour and punish bad behaviour. 
Yet not all children grow up to behave in this pro-social way. Children in particular, watching very aggressive films or TV shows, or playing computer games with a very violent theme, has been a very controversial topic in recent years. One of the most shocking cases was the 1993 murder of toddler James Bulger by two 10-year-old primary school boys who had been watching video nasties on the then relatively new medium of a VHS videotape recorder. And this grew drew great media concern about the dangers of such films. One of the issues with trying to establish a relationship between media and behaviour is the sheer number of variables involved. One of the boys in the James Bulger case had grown up in a particularly violent household and both boys grew up in poor households with parental mental health issues. The case was so controversial that it sparked a major nature-nurture debate about whether these boys had been born evil or learned to be that way through their life experiences because secondary socialisation plays such an important role in forming individual beliefs, behaviours, identities and attitudes. Culture is learned from primary and secondary socialisation and psychologists were interested in how these norms, behaviours, attitudes and identities were transmitted between group members. Albert Bandura hypothesised that learning can occur both directly and indirectly. We learn both from our own actions and experiencing reward or punishment as a result, but we also learn from watching the behaviour of other people and seeing if they are rewarded or punished for their actions. But whilst a traditional behaviourist approach places an emphasis only on observable behaviour and assumes that most behaviour is learned from the environment, it assumes that anything which is not a stimulus or a response is ignored. It doesn't take account of our mental processes, sometimes referred to as the black box or the mind. Additionally, the behaviourist approach seems to suggest that in order to learn something, individuals must observe it and then try it in some sort of trial and error procedure. Bandura felt that this type of trial and error learning could not explain how people learned a language, customs or educational, religious or political practices. He felt that the complex process of socialisation could not occur through trial and error. He felt that behaviour, society and cognition were all interrelated and so proposed a model of behaviour based on reciprocal determination with three factors. Personal factors, behavioural factors and environmental factors all interacting with each other. One way of understanding this is to think about when you're in a bad mood. This mood affects you directly but also indirectly for those people around you because of the way you treat them. Some people may then choose to ignore you, or they might adopt your bad mood whilst they're interacting with you. In turn, these behaviours may reinforce your mood and behaviour in unhelpful ways. This is reciprocity. So instead of learning by trial and error, Bandura proposed that people learn their ways of thinking and behaving by paying attention to how other people think and behave. This is observational learning. So a child brought up in an abusive family is more likely to be exposed to violent and aggressive models and so exhibit aggressive and violent behaviours themselves 
Whereas a child who's brought up in a pacifist and non-violent household will be much more likely to engage in pacifist and non-violent behaviour. By 1986, Bandura had turned his attention to the processes of human cognition, the mind, the so-called black box. He later focused his theory on social cognition, which explains why this theory is known by two different names. By focusing what goes on in the black box, Bandura was able to explain complex learning processes much better because he was going beyond simple stimulus-response behaviour. The cognitive aspects of the theory can be summed up as the view that human beings have control over their behaviour, that they can regulate their behaviour, that they can develop intentions and forethoughts, they can visualise future behaviours and they can reflect on their own capabilities and goals. They're self-aware and can think about their own self-efficacy. The concept of self-efficacy is an integral part of this theory. It can be defined as people's beliefs in their capabilities to produce desired effects by their own actions. So it's this belief that we have in our own abilities, specifically our ability to meet the challenges ahead of us and to complete the task successfully. It's related to our sense of self-worth and closely linked to motivation, resilience and confidence. Bandura particularly believed that self-efficacy influences what coping behaviour is initiated when an individual is met by stress and challenge, along with determining how much effort will be expended by a person to meet their goals and how long they will pursue those goals for. Bandura suggests there are four main sources of self-efficacy beliefs and we'll just go through those. The first one is mastery experiences. Past success reinforces the belief that further success is possible, whereas failure reduces belief in a future successful outcome. Second, vicarious experiences are those where seeing other people or models similar to ourselves succeed by sustained effort is likely to raise self-efficacy this belief in your ability to carry out a behaviour successfully. The third thing is social persuasion, where people can be convinced by other people that they're capable of being successful at a given action. If this is given, people are likely to make greater effort and to sustain that effort for longer than those who receive no reinforcement. And finally, four, our emotional and physical states affect our self-efficacy. For example, a poor mood can reduce it, whilst a good mood can increase it. Bandura carried out a series of famous experiments in the 1960s, starting with Bandura, Ross and Ross in 1961. These experiments used a large inflatable bobo doll as the object of aggression for a model, whilst children observed the model acting aggressively towards the doll. Now, by model here, I mean adult individual, either male or female. Aggression has been a key focus for social cognitive theory, and in this study, the researchers used 72 children in a clever design. They split the children, who consisted of equal numbers of boys and girls, into three groups. 24 of the children saw an aggressive model with the Bobo doll, 24 children saw a non-aggressive model with the Bobo doll, 
and the remaining 24 were a control group who saw no model with the doll. In both the aggressive and non-aggressive conditions, a child was seated in one corner of the room whilst a model was escorted in by the experimenter to another corner. The child was given prints and stickers to play with, whilst the model's corner contained a number of toys, including a 1.5 metre high Bobo doll with weights in its bottom. It's actually a horrible looking toy with a clown face, and the weighted base means that when you push it over, it bounces back up again. Once the model and child were seated and playing, the experimenter left the room. In the non-aggressive condition, the model ignored the doll and played quietly with the toys. In the aggressive condition, the model played briefly with the toys before turning to the Bobo doll and being very aggressive towards it physically and verbally for the rest of the time. Some of it in unique ways so that any imitation could be identified and contrasted with unrelated aggressive play. The child was then given time to engage with attractive toys before a mild case of frustration was induced by moving them back into the experimental room. The experimenter remained in this room with the child but sat quietly in the corner of the room for the 20-minute experimental session. Bandura's findings supported his hypothesis that children watching aggressive models would increase aggressiveness. The researchers also discovered that boys were more likely to imitate physical aggression, whilst girls were more likely to imitate verbal aggression. In all situations, the presence of a same-sex model was more influential, and boys were more aggressive than girls in all groups. But simply watching a model isn't enough for learning to take place. The observer also has to pay attention to the model and then recognise a specific behaviour on which to focus. Related to this is the idea that some models command more attention than others. For example, influential models include a parent, teacher, older brother or sister, or increasingly these days a celebrity, media influencer or blogger. Bandura also found that televised models seem to hold attention despite the lack of social cohesion between the model and the observer. After attention, there are three cognitions which affect whether an observed behaviour is likely to be imitated, and these are retention, reproduction and motivation. The first one, retention, means being able to remember what behaviour was observed in order to repeat it. This is particularly important in situations where an imitation of the observed behaviour is delayed. The second cognition is reproduction or copying an action. And this is affected by self-efficacy, the belief that we're able to accomplish a task. People tend not to try something if they expect failure. So a belief that you're capable of successfully reproducing an observed behaviour is really important. And as I've already mentioned, self-efficacy is affected by four factors. Mastery experiences, vicarious experiences, verbal persuasion and emotional and physiological states. The third cognition is motivation. And this has a very close relationship with reinforcement. It helps to explain why you might want to perform a certain action or behaviour. 
For example, if you perform an action and are rewarded for it, you're likely to be motivated to repeat it. Whereas if you're punished for it, you're not as likely to repeat the action. So reinforcements can influence a person's motivation to act. And it isn't just whether we ourselves are rewarded or punished, it's whether the model is rewarded or punished. So attention, retention, reproduction and motivation are what Bandura called the mediating factors that help us to understand why two people can experience the same behaviour, but only one will imitate it. It's one of the issues when investigating the role of media in aggression. So you might remember the mediating factors as A-R-R-M, which you can remember in the style of a pirate as arm. It always makes people laugh, but if you remember it, that's great. Let me give you a personal and decidedly non-aggressive example. My late father was a very talented painter. He could paint in any style. He had his own style, but he could do Van Gogh, Degas, Lowry, Renoir, you name it. I loved to watch him paint as a child. And of course, as a parent, he was a role model for me. I had plenty of opportunities to imitate the painting behaviour. Yet let's just say that the outcomes were less than satisfactory. The phrase a five-year-old could do better is the one that comes to mind. So although I've paid attention to the model, I have retained the behaviour, I have the motor skills to reproduce the behaviour, and I have the motivation to try and paint a masterpiece, my self-efficacy levels are so low that I'm not likely to have another go anytime soon. And to be honest, no amount of reinforcement or persuasion is likely to change the view. So I've acquired a particular behaviour, but I have no plans to display it. I simply don't feel I possess the competence to perform this behaviour successfully, no matter how much I would like to paint beautifully. On the other hand, I did successfully use um, chopsticks by learning from friends. And the irony is that I'm now the only one in my family able to use them whilst being the one who least likes Chinese food. So what's the status of this idea today? Effectively, the essence of observational learning remains unchanged from the classic Bandura experiments. Both humans and animals seem to learn through observation, very much according to the same rules. And children will acquire a range of behaviours from adults through observational learning. However, some ideas have changed since the 1960s. In contrast to previous beliefs about competence versus performance, recent research suggests that the opportunity to perform socially learned behaviours between observations does improve performance. An important application of observational learning is sports psychology, where it's used to enhance the acquisition of motor skills. Instructors use a combination of demonstration, verbal instruction and practice to help learners acquire new skills. Demonstration is an effective coaching technique. Another important application, particularly in the advent of the coronavirus pandemic, is social cognitive theory for health promotion campaigns. Think about how the government has encouraged the population to stay home, keep their distance and stay safe. Social cognitive theory was investigated by Bandura in 2004 in connection with health promotion campaigns. 
He identified that self-efficacy was the most important explanatory and predictive determinant in health promotion success. He equated this with the concept of perceived behavioural control, as used in another model of health promotion and reducing addiction, called the theory of planned behaviour. How has social cognitive theory been applied in the current health pandemic? The key concepts suggest a clear progression. First, the level of knowledge of the potential risks and behaviours, whether that be smoking, addiction or contracting COVID-19. Second, the degree of self-efficacy that an individual has about that health behaviour. For example, a belief that they can give up smoking or that washing hands will reduce their risk of contracting COVID. Third, the outcome expectations of that behaviour. For example, if I gave up smoking, I'd be healthier. If I wash my hands and use social distancing, I will stay healthier. Fourth, the health goals that individuals want to set for themselves. Now, slightly easier with something like fitness, you could say, I want to be able to run five kilometres in six months' time. Or it might be that you say in six months' time, I want to not have caught COVID-19. I want to stay healthy. The fifth element is how that person will realise and achieve their goals. So they might say, I'll join a gym and train three times a week. Or they might say, I will self-isolate. I will stay two metres away from people not in my household. I'll order my shopping online. I'll keep using video calls to keep in touch with friends and family. And then the last element, the sixth one, is the ways that the goals may be helped or impeded. So in case of fitness, I live near a gym, but most of my friends smoke. Or in today's society, my internet connection isn't very good. Will I be able to connect with people? Bandura believed that self-efficacy provides the foundation for change to occur in terms of health behaviours. Unless people believe they can produce desired effects by their actions, they have little incentive to act or to persevere in the face of difficulties. Bandura suggested that a key way to motivate people to change negative health behaviours is to motivate them to focus on their own self-interest in the matter, the goals and aspirations they value most highly. This is influenced by attitudes towards the behaviour, the social norms surrounding the behaviour and the intentions that may determine their behaviour. So Bandera claimed that public health promotion campaigns are really only successful with people who have high efficacy. People with low self-efficacy are likely to ignore health advice and to take no action, even if they know the risks of their unhealthy lifestyle choices. They're likely to perceive themselves to be more vulnerable to disease. Bandura found that people who'd been exposed to a programme of high self-efficacy beliefs began to adopt more healthy eating habits and to take exercise. The most effective way to promote healthy living, according to Bandura though, is to go beyond the individual level. He stresses the need for a more ambitious, socially orientated agenda of research and practice by making health promotion a concern of the whole community rather than just the one individual concerned. 
So in a nutshell, placing health promotion in a wider context emphasises the needs for healthy behaviours to be viewed as a community issue, rather than pointing the finger of blame at individuals for the choices they make. How does this relate to the government strategy using COVID-19? Consider for a moment the government in the UK's initial message. Stay home, protect the NHS, save lives. It's clearly getting the whole community involved. It's implying that if you go out, then you are going to be damaging the NHS and other people's lives. This approach has been particularly effective if you look at what New Zealand have done and the messages from the Prime Minister then. These have been particularly effective in promoting the community aspect of the health promotion campaign. The government's message has now changed, along with, if you've noticed, the colour around it. It's gone from being um, a red tape, which implies stop, don't do anything, to a green tape to the slightly less clear, stay alert, control the virus, save lives. So an interesting model to apply to current health promotion strategies for coronavirus. Okay, that's it for this episode. Thank you for listening to the Origins, Approaches and Debates in Psychology podcast. It was written and presented by Mrs Lawrence.